0: Hello, my name is Bronwyn Johnson and I'm the director of Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival, presented by Climate. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the festival takes place and acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose lands the program you're about to hear was staged and recorded. Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 is a socially engaged festival of ideas, exhibitions and events. Presenting over 30 curated exhibitions at leading museums and galleries in Melbourne and regional Victoria, the 2019 festival considers ideas and concepts around art and activism, community engagement, transition and accelerated action on climate change. In this festival, artists, curators, scientists and policy experts envisage a world where we protect and care for our Earth from the river systems, oceans and lands to the air we breathe. As we know, actions to reduce global warming will only arise from communities based upon fairness, Indigenous knowledge, cooperation and through valuing the arts and sciences. Let's join now with the artists, curators, scientists and policy experts through this festival program, Climate Bites, at the Living Pavilion at the University of Melbourne. On
1: this rather chilly fresh Thursday the 9th of May. My name's Renee Beale. I am the producer of Climate Bites which are lunchtime info-packed discussions with experts who I'll introduce in a moment on topics such as food, water, fashion and nature where hopefully you can take away practical knowledge and tips to bite back against our climate emergency. This is the first of our Climate Bites discussions where we'll focus on water today. So Climate Bites is being held on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to extend that respect to all Indigenous people joining us today. The Wurundjeri people are the region's first scientists, patiently observing and sometimes gently shaping the ecosystem they cared for for thousands of years. As a scientist who studied at this great university, I am humbled by the deep knowledge of the Wurundjeri and other Indigenous communities, and I feel incredibly grateful for their generosity in reaching out to educate and work with scientists in how to best care for country together. Now to water. So water is life. Without blue, there is no green. If water is an essential ingredient to life, why is it so political? And mismanaged. Anyone? Watergate? (laughs) Climate change is causing extreme weather events, with some regions experiencing severe droughts, whilst other regions damaging flash flooding. Sea levels will rise. Technologies will allow us to recycle water, and they already do, yet many of us struggle to embrace recycled water and buy bottled water over tap. Can we change perceptions around water? The agricultural industry is one of the largest users um, and contaminators of water. Can we grow sufficient food to feed our growing population while using less water? Can we move past thinking about water as a resource, but as an entity in itself deserving respect? New Zealand recently awarded personhood status to one of their rivers, meaning the river now has legal standing and can act as a person in a court of law. Within our increasingly urbanised lives, how can we help support the water that in turn supports us? Joining us for this illuminating discussion and to help unpack some of these questions are Dr Anna Herliman and Dr Jen Ray. So I'll just read some of their bios so that you know who you were talking to today. So Dr Anna Hurleyman is a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne, exploring people's perceptions of alternative water resources and how the design of cities and their policy settings can address the risks of sea level rise and water scarcity. Dr. Jen Ray is an artist researching food security, disaster preparedness and ecological futures. She is the creative lead of Fair Share Fair and a co-founder of the Riparian Project, a public art initiative that aims to shift grazing practices in Victoria to improve river health. Before we get underway, Climactic are recording this discussion for a podcast that they're producing Climatic tell stories of people making a difference and aim to be the people's voice on climate change embedded in community, producing stories from the perspective of actual people. To start us off, I'll ask the first question to the panel, but then just raise your hand if you want to say something or ask a question. So we've seen recently communities re-engaging with water issues, particularly communities around the Murray-Darling River. But often water is is just expected to flow from taps when we need it without much thought. So, Anna, I'm wondering, you've been researching how we might go about communicating water issues in a changing climate. I'm wondering if you could just outline a couple of key take-home messages that you found through that research.
2: Sure. Well, thank you for having me today. I guess one of the key things we, my co-researcher Sarah Bell from UCL in Um, the UK and I found was that we've really looked at limited ways to communicate about water and that we need to think more broadly about how we can communicate about water. We think very little about how even policies about our cities can communicate about water. So really when we think about Melbourne, there are very little cues in the constructed built form that tell us that water is a scarce resource and we should use it wisely. We have these taps and pipes that deliver fresh, high-quality water at all times. If we don't think about it, we just expect that this is a limitless supply of water. We need to start to think differently and communicate in ways that our built form is shaped to give people the reality that water is a scarce resource. Something that's been concerning me most recently is that we haven't had any water restrictions in Melbourne, even though we know that we haven't been getting much rain. And I think there's much more ways that we can engage with people about the reality of water rather than rely on these highly technical supply side solutions for water, like, you know, big pipes and dams and the desal plant. So I think in terms of climate change, we need to understand that our water resources are going to change the way that the, the nature of rainfall, drought periods are going to be even longer. And we need to really rethink how we need to be more sustainable with our use of water and not just rely on those big technological solutions because they might fail. So we need to actually really think about the future and how that's going to change with climate change and think about the realities of our water use and how we have to change that and change our relationship. And we need to communicate that better through many things that our cities do, water authorities do, and really engage the community with a more in-depth conversation about it.
1: I'm wondering if you want to add to that, Jen in terms of some of the stuff that you've been working on, either around Fair Share Fair or the Repairingham project?
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me as well. Um, I was just actually thinking about what you were saying about the water restrictions. When I moved to Australia in 2008, it was during the drought. I came from Canada. Canada has the largest fresh water supply in the world, and so taking a bath is a a very normal thing. And I came here and was sort of penalised for having a bath, and I couldn't wrap my head around that. Target 155 was on, and Target 155 meant that Melbourne Water was trying to get people to consume only 155 litres of water a day, and that's, you know, drinking, your dishwasher, your washing, your bathing, that sort of thing. And, um, and as I walked around North Melbourne, um, there were all of these grey water and use signs in windows, homemade signs that were taped. And I started writing about that, and then when I was finishing my PhD, the drought had ended, and I went back to go and document the signs, and there were no, no more signs and I thought that was really strange. All of a sudden, you know, why, why were there signs at one point, And then why, you know, what, what had changed? I was enlightened by an article that the WWF published called Weathercocks and Signposts. And what they did is they did some research on the side of the house people put their solar panels on. What they found is that the majority of people, when solar panels first came out, they put solar panels on the street-facing side of their house. Rather than the side of the house that had the um, the best amount of sun, to, you know, to capture for energy, and that really spoke to me in a lot of ways. That um, a lot of behavior change and our ways, uh, you know, and our values and so forth are actually based on the perception of others. And so I think that that plays a really important role when we start thinking about water value and 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 our use. So. Does anyone have a question from the floor?
1: We'll take some questions that add to that if you want.
3: So the question, if people didn't hear, is
2: why don't we have water restrictions? And I think that's a a good question that we could perhaps ask the government. I'm not sure exactly what the current status is, but before the desalination plant was built, and I'd need to check this again, there are certain trigger points for water restrictions depending on the level of the dams, and they trigger certain levels of water use restrictions and overall many governments want to reduce the amount of or the percentage of years that residents face water restrictions and I think that's something we could communicate and discuss. I mean do people want an unlimited water supply at all times or are you okay within a dry year to have to restrict your water use in some ways? No, so, isn't. yeah, well, on the bills is people's use. So when you get a bill, you um, you you are told how much you're using and there are graphs to compare your water use compared to a one-person, two-person, three-person, four-person average household. And um, I'm not sure if I should talk about some of these props I have with me, but I continue to conserve water and reuse water just informally in my house. I've got this bucket that I keep in the kitchen and every time if someone doesn't drink their full glass of water or after we've been washing veggies or whatever it is, we'll put the leftover water in this bucket and that's enough for me to water my veggie patch or lemon tree or a particular tree that might need water every day. It's very rare that I need to additionally put water on my garden. Some work that I did with people around Australia back in 2009 was talking about how they conserved water and their opinions about water restrictions. And a lot of people really felt it was just a matter of getting used to doing things differently. Older people remembered when water situations were much worse. And I think it's one person even said when they collected water themselves as well informally. And when they didn't need it in the garden, they'd tip it down and use it as a toilet flush. So I think there's so much more that we can do but my concern with the lack of restrictions and the lack of engagement in our reality of our water situation means that we're losing our resilience over time and when climate change really bites (laughs) and those highly technological solutions do fail, will we be resilient enough? Will we understand these behaviours and have them as our norms to be able to cope with this changing situation and that's my concern I don't want us to lose that resilience and that understanding of the true nature of water and how we have to use it as a resource that's scarce and the environment needs it too, not just us as humans.
3: I just also want to come back to this thing about the bills. What if that, you know, the Target 155 came back on but you actually were compared to your neighbours? Like it actually had the amount of water being consumed by your neighbours, right? If, you know, like that might actually be a way to, to you know, where possibly pride and shame can come into the the equation. In the research
2: that we've done, people are quite influenced by their family, then their immediate community, and and the further away the community gets, the less... um, It's even with recycled water. People are more willing to reuse their own water than their community, and their willingness to use that decreases the more removed the community becomes I want to pick up on what you said earlier so um, in case people couldn't hear it on the recording there was um, discussion about how we communicate water restrictions and by restricting that we communicate something about the value of the resource and I think that is important too the other interesting thing is recycled water and it's perceived and real value now when we recycle water it costs a lot of money for the chemicals and the nutrients, especially in an urban setting, all our legal requirements are that we need to treat it to a really high quality, even if we're just using it on the garden. So that costs a lot of money and it also uses a lot of energy, which equals money to pump to where it's needed. But people's willingness to pay for recycled water is usually not very high. So we also have a perception problem in comparison to the price it is, which is often more expensive than fresh water. So I think, again, we need to think about water as a resource that's valuable and if its quality is fit for purpose as well. Yeah, I think our our thinking about water needs to really change as well for us to really value it as a resource. Okay, so the question was about whether I feel there's stigma about recycled water. I have with me in my hand a bottle of water that used to come from a sewage treatment plant, which has now been treated to a very high standard in Singapore, suitable for drinking. If you want to try it, I can give you a taste of it. I've drunk it before. In Singapore, they treat their wastewater till it's of drinking quality, and you can go to the recycled water treatment plant and, and have a tour, and you can take a, as many bottles as you want to, and I've brought some back to Australia And it's very high quality water. They put it in their supply. At the moment, I think it's about 4% of their drinking water supply. But Singapore are a very small nation and there's very limited room for catchments. And they used to get a lot of their water from Malaysia. And that agreement is coming to an end. So they need to really think about their water source. But that project's going well. And it's because of the really good communication that the government have had. The community are accepting of that source of water. And we've got a lot to learn from that, I think. So traditionally, we take water from a river, we use it a bit downstream. That's where we put our sewage. In many situations, it's not treated well. Next town along takes water from the river, treats it a little bit, uses it. We are all drinking recycled water anyway. All water is recycled. So with the case of recycled water, technology is speeding up that process. And that's where some people have a problem. It's trusting technology versus trusting the process of nature. Now, people's attitudes to using recycled water in many cases are a barrier to it being a source of drinking water. And that's why we have a lot to do in the communication um, realm about trying to communicate recycled water's potential for drinking use. Previously, engineers would just decide something would happen, they'd announce it and defend it. There's that DAD approach, decide, announce, defend. We are now realising that a number of projects around the world have failed because of that approach and a better communication strategy is needed in the context of the water situation that particular town is facing. And Toowoomba in Queensland is a good example of that.
3: I know of a project that's happening at the University of Melbourne right away um, with the Science Gallery for their disposable program and there will be an artist working with the science gallery converting urine. People can donate their urine, and at the end it goes through the cycle, and it becomes drinkable water. So that's happening in August. So, you know, I'm sure there's some interesting sort of follow-up there as well. It was mentioned that I do work with the Riparian Project. Does everybody know what a riparian zone is? No? So a riparian zone is the beds and banks of rivers. So in Australia, 128,000 kilometres of rivers and waterways are exposed to livestock grazing, so free grazing. So there is an English common law that allows anyone whose land is adjacent to a water source to be able to use that water for free, or for free and reasonable use. Now that term reasonable is actually the issue here. So 128,000 kilometres is the equivalent of flying from Auckland all the way to the Netherlands and back. So unrestricted livestock grazing is the biggest barrier to cleaning up rivers in Australia. It exposes rivers to all sorts of contaminants, breaks down some of the biodiversity, it leaves the rivers open to um, exposure and also you know, relates to drought amongst a whole other list of things. It also is, the, this livestock also drinks from these rivers. I was kayaking one time on the Laudan River and there was a Boy Scouts camp that they were all learning their swimming skills And we continued down the river, and there were livestock in the river, right? So these livestock, you know, they're they're drinking this water. It's some of the reasons why they're on some of the antibiotics and so forth that they're on, and then that goes back into the river. So one of the biggest barriers that we can sort of, you know, um, address is actually changing that English common law. And I've presented on the Riparian Project in China, in New Zealand, in Canada. And that, not in China, this this law isn't in China as far as I know, but um, everyone has the same issue. It's an issue that the government's put in the too hard basket and yet all of the stakeholders agree that something needs to be done about this. But it's that that question about reasonable use. What is reasonable use?
1: thought maybe we could, associated with that around agriculture and that industry, maybe we could touch on some of the issues of food growing, around particularly our largest sort of food growing areas in Victoria and their reliance on using water um, from some of the rivers and the different, whether with climate change starting to bite, whether we need to be thinking about our industries in, in, you know, food growing and whether we need to start changing what we're growing and talk about some of the industries that potentially might not be, you know, the best industries to be, you know, supporting or, or propping up in amongst all that. Do you want to talk
3: about that? I have one word: almonds. Um, so almonds, multi-billion-dollar industry in California. It's their largest crop, their cash crop. Up until two years ago, um, drought conditions. They've had a turnaround with their drought conditions, but they were starting to stop planting almonds because the drought conditions were meaning that um, it wasn't sustainable. And so Australia decided to pick up the loss, and now Australia's it's it's our largest cash crop. You know, it's an extremely water-intensive process, and you would think that we would learn from California. But you know, almonds, it, it, your almond latte, and I, and I mean, I'm I'm complicit in that as well. Almonds are uh, a major issue, and from a food perspective, you know, the majority of the foods that are grown in Australia are non-indigenous to the soil. We're talking like in the 80s and 90 percent. So a lot of the crops that we're growing and the things that we're eating aren't healthy, and it's so great to be amongst the living pavilion here, where we're actually seeing indigenous plants, you know, that are, that have adapted to the conditions and the soil, you know, for centuries. So really looking at the origins of where our food comes from is, is a start, and just seeing, you know, once you start growing food, you you start to understand you know what what needs a lot of water and the sources of water that you use you know whether it is gray water because like in our garden we have we have different compost piles and we have different water that goes into different plants and so forth so because you know you can't use some water on you know the mm-hmm. food that you're going to eat and so forth but once you're growing food then you start to have a greater understanding of what water you should be using
1: from my understanding the alternative sources of of dairy drinks is a big issue because, you know, if you're not going to drink milk from from a dairy source, then soy, you know, rice particularly needs a lot of water to grow and then you've got almonds needing a lot of water to grow. So it's really hard to make a a good decision from a a climate perspective and from a water perspective in terms of alternative milk products.
2: And isn't it that these are kind of fads that our society goes through? So possibly it's a fad and then there's a lot of remediation of the land, you know, there's so many problems with sort of fad foods for farmers for markets, for for the environment yeah, it's quite interesting yeah no, black coffee black coffee, that's pretty hardcore Yeah, diversity in, in food sources is good, with climate change we don't know what bugs might kill off certain plants, you know so I think diversity overall is good but I want to just put in this conversation the fact that Australia, Australians have a very good quality of life and we have very high greenhouse gas emissions. And there are many people in developing countries who do not have the same comforts as we do or standards of living. Yet it is their right, I guess, you know, to to improve their quality of living. So I think if we're thinking ethically living in a planet that's facing these challenges, then we need to give up some of our comforts that we enjoy, but that's going to be challenging to do. So I think it's about being wiser with how we produce things and reducing our impact while trying to still, you know, not lose too much of our comforts, but doing it in a way that's much more sustainable. I think we need to put that in perspective and I think we do have a responsibility as good
3: citizens to try and really reduce our impact I think a starting point is to look at the word sustainability and think of it as a toxic word. That's about keeping the status quo. If we project ourselves to you know, eleven and a half years into the future and work our way back, I think using the metaphor of a weed thinking about how in, from a bioremediation sort of sense that weeds pull out you know, toxins from the soil and so forth. It's kind of like taking a look at your environment and seeing what sorts of impacts am I making that are putting toxins into the soil and what sorts of things can I do to pull toxins out of the soil and the soil being a metaphor for every everything in your life, right? And trying to create closed-loop systems, looking at how your waste be turned into energy, I mean, there's a lot of really great things that are happening in social media now where, and they're coming up really quick, you know, things like in Moreland, we have a thing, it's, it's, a, it's a waste thing. People drive by and they take a photo of any sort of thing that's in hard rubbish and people go and pick it up, you know, like it's, it's in our mindset. But Erica Violet Lee, who is a young um, Aboriginal artist from and writer from Canada, she talks a lot about Indigenous futures and about recreating the world that should have been prior to colonial disruption. Using that as sort of a starting point and thinking about if all of these sorts of things, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, you know, like what what could have the world been? and starting, using that as a starting point to, to move forward. And I think that that in some ways prevents um, some of these things in, around anxiety or paralysis or nihilism or anything like that.
1: I wonder whether we could expand a little bit on... You've just touched on Indigenous communities and stuff. I'm wondering if we can we can expand upon some of that in terms of some of the projects that you might know that are occurring at the moment, collaborations
3: with Indigenous communities looking at water futures... I do know that there are some projects that are happening that came out of Tipping Point Australia, but I, I, I you know, can't comment too much on it. But um, in terms of what's happening, I mean, there's a lot of conversations that are happening. I mean, right now, the Year Boy First Nations Festival is going on and there's a lot of conversations that are happening around here. I mean, the Living Pavilion, you know, I mean, creating platforms for these dialogues, putting elders first looking at deep listening and deep time that things do take time that you can't go into the future without acknowledging your past I mean having these things as dialogues and not turning your back to them just like with water you know so many cities were built covering water or apartment buildings you know with their backs to water you know Mm -hmm. facing facing these things you know we're going to have to feel uncomfortable in order to have change and I think There's a lot that we can learn from our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Right now, Canada and Australia are facing elections. The risk is, I mean, this is a climate election. Both both countries are at risk of having conservative governments right now, which is, you know, very, very frightening. Um, But during the Harper government in Canada, the Harper government started to um, penalize environmental groups. Shutting them down and immobilizing them by putting restrict, you know, having audits and and so forth, and the environmental movement got behind the First Nations people of Canada because we have land rights for our Indigenous people. So putting our efforts in behind Indigenous land rights in Australia is, you know, is one way of actually dealing with some of these issues that we're facing going forward into the future.
2: I'm not sure if you how much time members of the audience have spent here, but here in the living pavilion, for the benefit of those listening online it's a site at the University of Melbourne that's a temporary turned into a temporary space about climate change and Indigenous knowledge and a range of other issues and environment and running behind us where we're sitting here used to be a creek and so it's about bringing the Indigenous knowledge about what was on this site prior to the University of Melbourne and beyond is really important and This site will be turned into something new for the campus, new buildings and a new space for students. Part of that project is really bringing Indigenous knowledge to the use of this space and uncovering what used to be here and making, you know, that water story known. And there's some artwork along that path to to communicate that here as well. So I think, yeah, Indigenous knowledge is so important for us to be able to sustainably manage land and we need to understand that story and certainly that's happening here the University of Melbourne with this project um, the bigger student new student precinct just to also touch on what people said before about should should all this change happen at government or grass roots level and I think it's both and I'm not sure who has this saying and it might have been so long ago that no one really knows who started it but the saying of be the change you want to see and for me I try to do as much as I can, as much as possible, cycle and do things within my local community that not many people do. But I think it's important to do that and for people to see how you're (laughs) commuting, um, how you're using your resources and what you're doing and communicate that to them. And hopefully people will see how easy it is and what the benefits are and, and, and make some small changes too. But the reality is sometimes life is challenging and we can't always, you know, be perfectly, what you were mentioning earlier, you know, you can't set yourself up too much to, to be too stressful and virtuous. So I think it's a bit of both. And I think government definitely has a role to play in changing, definitely, combination of both
1: So can, you know, we're talking about indigenous, sharing indigenous knowledge, but there's also international knowledge as well around water practices. And we've kind of touched on a bit of that from the Singapore example. We don't seem to be having that dialogue, though, about sharing knowledge with other countries. I'm wondering, you know, obviously, you've done some international research as well. I'm wondering, are there like really simple things that other countries have thought to do that we just, we just haven't thought to do here, but we could definitely do.
2: Well, I think a lot about cities because part of my work is about urban planning and I think, you know, so much of it is about our urban form as well and the nature of the plants we're planting in our urban spaces. And now, as we talked about earlier, the 155 campaign, in Melbourne, we used to consume like 500 or 600 litres per person per day. So we've made huge inroads into reducing our water use And part of that is urban form. Part of that is the fact that a lot of people don't have big gardens anymore in their backyards. Part of it's because people that do are planting different kinds of plants. And part of it is the messages that we've had in their campaigns to reduce water use. So we have had some success, but what we tend to see in Melbourne is every time there's a drought with water use restrictions, our consumption decreases. Once water use restrictions are lifted, consumption goes up again. So there's this relationship between drought and people's engagement with reducing water use. So there are things we've learnt from the urban form of different countries. There's also things we've learnt about recycling water and you can see this purple pipe. In some subdivisions in Australia and other parts of the world, they deliver recycled water that's not of drinking water quality but can be used on gardens and to flush toilets. So there are examples from around the world. Some of these Australia is leading to try and rethink the way we're using water I think we've all got a lot to learn and, um, yeah, definitely lots we can do, but lots of different things going on in different countries about even putting recycled water back under the ground in aquifers to draw upon later for reuse. Some of these have big environmental impacts, so I think we need to think carefully about the benefits and the impacts of each option. And often what, in my opinion, what it comes down to is you're really using the water resource wisely, <laughs> And hopefully you won't need other
3: options because you've conserved so much because every other option has potential impacts. I have a question about embedded water. Do you have any insights into, you know, um, how embedded water around food and so forth, how that's changing as water becomes more scarce internationally?
2: Also known as embodied water? Yeah. So I think overall we have seen improvements in efficiency of water use in agriculture in some locations particularly led by countries that are water scarce like Israel. Israel, it's my understanding, decades ago, they were really leading the way with drip irrigation of certain crops and later a lot of, in I think it was in more the citrus growing areas of Australia were one of the first areas to take up drip irrigation. I might be wrong in that. So there have been some efficiencies in certain parts of the world for water use of certain crops even in terms of how that water is delivered to farms. For example, a lot of bulk delivery of water is in open channels which high evaporation occurs. So there have been some improvements made to the efficiency of the delivery of water for crops. And in some areas, because the water situation is so bad, they've had to revert to rain-fed, you know, just waiting for the rain to come, which then can impact the the crop yields and crop outcomes. So, yeah, there have been some improvements made with technology of water and, and the crop sort of technologies too, but, yeah, it's still probably much more that we can do.
4: Oh, we can definitely
2: estimate it and people have and you can even just get rough information not by a certain product label but by products. You can get rice is a really highly intensive crop, water intensive crop and we export a lot to Asia. So particularly during the millennium drought, which was a a sort of a decade-long drought in southeastern Australia that sort of finished about nine years ago, there was a lot of talk and a lot of information discussed about that embodied water and the products that we were sort of exporting and importing. And even globally, it's discussed a lot um, in terms of water and food security and, you know, globally, where are waters moving in terms of food products? So, yeah, a lot of people are discussing that and and talking about that and there's definitely information on the internet if you're wanting to see. Cotton is also another big one and we wear a lot of cotton. (laughs) A lot of environmental issues, water, energy... It's in every decision we make. I did want to get on to the curly question of sea level rises.
1: I know no one really wants to talk about this, um, but it's a bit concerning considering we're probably going to face some of it. I wonder, because I, I live near a coastal community, so obviously it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a personal question as well in terms of planning for things and, and where we're kind of at with that
3: issue. I, I can't specifically comment on you know what we what we'll be facing around um, sea level rise in Melbourne, but what I can tell you is that there are certain factors in terms of the perfect storm. I do a lot of work in North Melbourne. We're doing a five year project called Refuge, and we do disaster preparedness activities. We look at the role of the arts in disaster preparedness, and we did a flood scenario. And in that flood scenario, we looked at North Melbourne and. If we have a certain number of days of rain, right, we have a tidal flow and so forth, that's a natural flood zone. You know, that's, there's 30,000 people that are being slotted to move into the Arden Street area. When we look at climate change and so forth, we're not looking at one freak weather event. We're starting to look at cumulative impacts and also that, that communities aren't necessarily going to bounce back. So I was thinking, I was actually thinking about what Bronwyn had said about share waste, Right, um, we have um, a community market garden up in Faulkner, and we, we use alternative economies around how we distribute the food. And one of the things that people do is they actually can bring their food waste to us and actually take vegetables in exchange. Right, We have little rules around that you should never be able to look at your soil, always protect your soil. And so that's putting mulch on it and so forth, and that actually helps to, to keep water in the soil these are sort of little tangential things that are sort of bringing some things back um, right. but that don't necessarily relate to sea level rise but um, are more to do with sort of community effort. Resilience, yeah. And resilience. Yeah. There's a really great book called Radical Homemakers by Shannon Hayes. And one of the things that she talks about is, you know, and I think we're doing this here, is we're acknowledging problems, right? That's sort of the first step is actually f- turning your face towards it and saying this is this is a problem, right? Right. And then she talks about the next stage. And the next stage is around acknowledging that there's sort of skills and knowledges that you might not have. And you, and you start to retrain or you, you, find, you, know, you seek out that knowledge. And what often happens, and the majority do, is they stop there. That's also a survivalist sort of way of like collecting your, your bounty. The third stage that she really promotes is about reconnecting and actually doing an audit of yourself and looking at what are the skills and knowledges that I have that can actually contribute to the whole. So I use the metaphor, and we do this actually up at the Market Garden, is um, around community pasada making. I don't come from a gardening background. My family never cooked at home. We always ate out. So I feel like I've been learning a lot of skills that I should have learned at a young age. But, you know, we know the neighbour who has the best pasada recipe. We know somebody who knows how to grow the tomatoes. We we have people who can chip in money and buy the equipment. And then um, every year what we do is... 27 of us get together and we make Posada together and this year we made 120 liters of Posada right so like that's a really good metaphor everybody you know knows something you have a role and you have a function and you have skills and you have knowledges and if we think from a sort of an altruistic sort of way of facing an uncertain future if we bring those together like that's a way in which we can actually be more community resilient I was recently at a forum um, with about 200 people and the facilitator asked the audience, how many people in, in the audience know more than 200 people in your community? And there were only one or two people that put their hand up. Okay, so 200 people. And she went, you know, 200, 100, 50, 20. And when she said five, how many people know five people in their community member? The majority of the people put their hands up. That's a really frightening thing. We know that in disasters, um, disasters heighten disadvantage... And those, you know, you might be sort of privileged now in terms of having fruit at your, or sorry, sorry, food at your disposal in your refrigerator and so forth. But in a disaster, most cities only have three days worth of food available. You might actually want to know your neighbor who knows how to grow veggies and so forth. You know, these these are the communities thinking that eleven and a half years into the future, what do I need to know? Um, fair share, fair. We have a question. What do you know that you don't know that you know that we all might need to know in a disaster? Um, that's, that's, that's actually like, that's doing an audit. That's actually looking at who, who are the knowledge keepers. And I mean, Indigenous knowledge keepers, the elders, you know, these skills and knowledges that are at the precipice of being lost. What are they? And how do we, as a translator generation, how do we translate that to our younger generations, those that are going to need to know that knowledge?
1: Excellent. On that, I might close considering it's two o'clock now. Please thank the panel. Anna and Jen, and also thank you to you for asking such wonderful questions and creating such an enriching discussion today. Thank you very much.
4: Hi, Mark here from Climactic. We'd like to thank Renee Beale of the Royal Society of Victoria for directing and moderating the Climate Bites series and Bronwyn Johnson and the whole Climart team for their commissioning of Climactic to record and create episodes from the Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. Please check out the whole lineup and their other good work at the links in the show notes and come along to the festival next year. We hope you've enjoyed this collaboration between Climactic and Climart.